Welcome to Feed the Feminine, a podcast dedicated to reviving archetypal feminine qualities in a masculine-dominated culture. I'm your host, Vanessa Sadudicato, a psychotherapist and writer empowering clients and readers to nourish their feminine while also repairing what's been damaged in its long-standing cultural repression. Join me each episode as we talk about the archetypes present in how we eat, express, and relate, and what steps we can take to find meaning and reach balance. On this episode, I discuss my own personal experiences with disordered eating and share the overall mission and philosophy of the hungry feminine. As always, before we dive in, a quick disclaimer. The information provided here is intended to convey general information only and does not intend to replace or infer proper psychological diagnosis. No therapist-client relationship is implied or actualized through any contact with this podcast, website, or its creators unless formally agreed upon in a proper clinical setting. And now, without further ado, here's this week's episode of the Feed the Feminine podcast. So in today's episode, I'm going to be introducing the Hungry Feminine a little bit, kind of explaining where that idea came from, what it means, how it's evolved over the last couple of years. And part of that story will be me sharing why I came into this work in the first place and what I was curious about within myself that led me to want to start sharing these ideas with people and why I think that's important. So we'll get a little bit into my backstory, um, but we'll work a little bit backwards. So The Hungry Feminine began back in 2015 when I was working on my graduate school thesis. And I went to a school called Pacifica Graduate Institute. It's up in Santa Barbara, and it's a psychology-based school. They offer psychology programs. They offer um, mythology programs, and it's it, they take a depth approach to the material. In other words, what that means is uh, looking at the unconscious. So when we look at psychological behaviors, what's lying underneath them in the unconscious, in the psyche, that if we could just make it known, if we could explore it a little bit and bring it into a conscious awareness, how might we understand ourselves a little bit differently? How might those behaviors no longer need to happen because they no longer serve us because we've become aware of what it is that they were trying to quell in us, whether it's a fear or a desire or a need, some sort of complex trauma response that's been happening throughout our lives in a patterned, you know, cyclical way for so long that maybe if we just bring a little bit of attention to in a, in a healthy contained, protective way, we might start to be able to navigate a little bit differently. And so knowing that my thesis was going to have to go into that depth, go into the unconscious, I wanted it to be something that was personally meaningful. Otherwise, I was not going to be able to pull off writing this 50-page dry academic thesis um, that nobody would probably ever read anyway. Um, So if I I had to do this project, then I wanted to get something out of it, which was to at least learn a little bit more about myself and the things that have plagued me the most throughout my life. And I wasn't sure what my topic was going to be, but every time I would think about it, all roads led back to eating disorders. And at first, I couldn't figure out if that was just because I knew that I had, quote, struggled with food. And I say that to imply that that's a very kind of loose way of identifying my relationship with food. It was a very passive way. Oh, I struggle with food. Yes, 
I mean, doesn't everybody in some sense? And what does that mean? And to what degree and intensity do I struggle with food? It was that sort of stuff that I couldn't really answer. But I knew that I struggled with food. And so I thought, okay, maybe that's why my thesis is calling me in this direction. But it also could have just been that I just had a general curiosity about the way we treat food in our culture and how we treat bodies in our culture. And I thought it was always very interesting that we really fetishize the idea of consumption. We like to binge watch things. We like to buy more things. We want to have more things. A lot of times status is determined by whether or not you have X, Y, and Z. We also fetishize food. You know, we have billboards that really show, you know, food oozing with calories and <laughs> and bacon and all of these sort of things that we almost sexualize it in a way. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if this was exactly that time, but there was a uh, marketing campaign for a particular fast food chain a couple of years ago that was sexualizing their their food by having, you know, bikini clad supermodels eating their burgers. And so I thought, isn't it so strange that America specifically, you know, this the, the sort of capital of supersize it and the way that we sexualize food and fetishize consumption and we're all about more, more, more. But when we look at a fat body, we have nothing but horrible things to say to that person. We reject that person from our society. We tell them that they're not attractive, that they need to get their stuff together because they're not healthy. And we have all of these judgments that once we see a person that's fat, we just immediately assume we know what's going on with them behind the, behind the scenes, what they're blood work results look like and what their health is like and how we should monitor and police the way that they consume. But yet we're all about consumption. So where's the messaging getting lost? And I started to wonder if there was something lost in our cultural shadow, meaning unconsciously, were we holding something dark collectively that we could not see that instead of dealing with it, we would just project that onto people in larger bodies and by treating them like crap or by uh, convincing ourselves that we were allowed to police them, we could avoid whatever icky thing was in our collective shadow that we didn't want to look at because there's a gap in that messaging. So I was curious about that. But I think the interesting thing was as much as I was curious about that, I still had a little bit of resistance to writing my thesis about eating disorders. And to me, that was the most curious part because Eating disorders kept coming up. It was the only clear answer for me for what I was going to write about in my thesis. It was the only thing that seemed interesting enough for me to want to keep reading about and researching and talking to people about. But I had a resistance. I was looking for some other topic. And the fact that I had that resistance told me that there was more to it than I was willing to allow myself to be vulnerable to. And that made me think, okay, well, then for sure I need to pursue this eating disorder stuff because there's definitely something that my psyche is trying to keep secret from me right now. And if there's any opportunity for me to go figure out what that is, now is that time. So I, I just ripped it open and I committed to it. And that was the, the path that I went down. And what I discovered was that me, quote, struggling with food was a lot bigger than that. And I almost couldn't believe how it had taken me so long to see it, how I had been walking around with an eating disorder since the time I was 13 years old and never called it that, never thought of it that way, could never accept that that was what was going on with me. 
because the whole time I was just saying, yes, I do, quote, struggle with food, but I couldn't put anything more concrete behind it. And listen, it, it isn't to say that we all need a diagnosis in order to be legit in our suffering. That's not the point at all, but we have to be aware of what's going on with us. And just like any other addiction, whether it's a substance addiction or a behavioral addiction, there's something that we're trying to appease in us and there's something that we're trying to avoid in ourselves. And so if I looked at it through the 12-step model, there's a reason admitting you have a problem is the first step. It's because you can't get anywhere unless you do that, but it's also one of the hardest things to do. It is a step. It, you don't just start off having an awareness of what your addictive behavior is. You have to have a moment where you figure it out, where you realize I've given my life over to something else. And that's a hard thing to realize because you realize how much you've lost in that process, how powerless you were in that process to reckon with yourself and realize that you have been living with an eating disorder for the past 20 years or whatever the addictive behavior is. It's a difficult thing. It's an emotional thing. It's an intense thing. It's a thing that you're going to weave in and out of. You're going to go up to step one and then you're going to go back down to step zero because you're going to be able to admit it one day and the next day you're going to go right back to justifying it and rationalizing your behavior and being in complete denial about the fact that you're powerless. So for me, leaning into this topic for my thesis was me admitting that I had a problem. And I had to go back and sort of watch the tape of my adolescence and and start to understand a little bit about when this started for me and how it got so big over the years. And what's so interesting, but really it actually isn't that interesting at all because it's very common, is that for me, my eating disorder didn't start with food. It started with my body. I never truly felt integrated into my body. And I know that maybe that sounds a little confusing for somebody who doesn't share that experience. I remember being a very young child, I think that this is actually the earliest memory that I have of being a human being. And I was very young and I would lay awake in bed at night and have these very strange sensations in my body that accompanied these very strange images in my head. It wasn't a hallucination. It was just my imagination. And I would start to have conversations with some other part of myself in that state and this other part of myself, this other narrative was very confused about my human identity. Who is this Vanessa person? Who is your family? How did you end up here on Staten Island, New York with these people in this body with this name? Who is this girl? This other narrative was, was angry almost. Like, who are these people? What is happening here? And I don't know what that voice was, except that maybe it was my soul or source or some part of my psyche that had been, you know, fragmented off. I don't know what the source of that conversation was, but I know that it was really uncomfortable and I didn't have any answers. I didn't know why I was placed in this body, why my spirit or why my soul was given this particular identity and this human container to walk through this life in. It was a very bizarre situation to have to handle at that young of an age. But I thought everybody was asking themselves those questions late at night or had at least at one point or another in their lives. And so I just let it go. But to me, it was just indicative of the fact that 
even at that young age when as a child you're usually pretty embodied you're in touch with your imagination you play a lot so you move a lot and you're just you're not thinking as much as you do when you get older you're just living and existing and experiencing and being curious and even in that state of my existence there was still a part of me that said I reject this body and I still don't understand like convince me convince me why this is a good idea and why I should get to know her so I had this reluctant narrative within me to that didn't trust Vanessa as a person as a human in a body and as I got older and socialized more with other people my age in school and things like that um, my body was always different I was always a lot taller than my peers so at an age when all of my girlfriends were petite and tiny and you know stick thin I was taller and a little bit broader and I wasn't fat although it's taken photographic evidence for me to understand that now because I felt fat I wasn't fat I was just in a larger body I was just taller and broader and I felt huge and I felt left out because all of the boys, as we were growing up through, you know, late elementary school and into junior high school, they liked the teenier girls because that helped them feel better about themselves because there, there are narratives that we teach boys and girls when they're growing up. For girls, we teach them that the smaller you are, the better. For boys, we teach them that the bigger you are, the better. So a boy doesn't want to date a girl that's the same size as him. He wants somebody that's going to make him feel tall and big and strong that can curl up in his arm and be sort of tiny and be swept away, you know, and I was not that girl. So I carried a lot of resentment for my body because it stood in the way of me socializing and developing as a young adolescent the way other people around me were able to. And I took on the identity of being a fat girl because I didn't know the nuances of it. I couldn't figure out how else to explain the fact that in general, I was just bigger than other girls and therefore rejected for that. Awkward because of that different because of that. And it almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy where I felt like I was the fat girl and started to become the fat girl. So there were other things going on. And I think there was definitely some cultural stuff in my family about women and food and being thin and maintaining a certain weight and how that gave you value. That narrative was for sure in my family. But interestingly, competing with that narrative was that we should eat and eat and eat and eat and eat because I grew up in an Italian family that uh, pretty much mostly migrated to America from Italy where they settled in Brooklyn and we had our Sunday dinners in Brooklyn at my grandmother's house every week and the whole point was to just manja manja eat as much as you can there's just so much food everywhere we turn and somebody's trying to convince you to eat it that's the culture that I grew up in you can't walk into a room without somebody fixing you a plate and guilting you into eating it. And I know that for my grandmother, that was a sign of love. That was a sign of protection, provision. She grew up in Italy at a time where, and, and her parents before her grew up in Italy in a time where um, they didn't have access to a lot of food. And so when they did get food, it was a feast. It was a celebration of, you know, we we finally have what we need and we don't have to worry anymore and you know my grandmother migrated to America also during the Great Depression so again she grew up in an environment where there just wasn't enough it was a, it was a scarcity mindset environment so as soon as there was abundance we leaned in we leaned in because it was such a relief to feel abundance it was such 
a powerful display of love to be in abundance to say we finally have this. I can take care of you now. Please eat everything that I'm giving you. Yet combine that with a narrative that says women are also supposed to be thin. I know that my grandfather had opinions about the weight of his wife, my grandmother, and his daughters, which includes my mother and my aunts. I've heard stories about how he would make comments about their bodies and how they would behave in order to comply with what he was asking for. And he wasn't alone. He was just the particular mouthpiece that I heard this narrative coming from. And so again, there's a conflicting ideology. It's all about romanticizing and celebrating food and over-consuming the food, but yet shaming bodies that represent any sort of indication that there was consumption. And in fact, shaming them so much that they stop consuming and they start restricting. And I remember hanging out with my grandmother in the nursing home as she got older, where she would talk about how she felt like she was gaining weight and she was she would refuse to eat certain meals. So that narrative was deeply ingrained in her to the point that even when she was an older woman who could have just lived in the freedom of being an old lady and not giving a crap whatsoever, she still felt guilty about the way that her body looked. What's also common in the backstory of people who have eating disorders or disordered eating patterns or people who struggle with food or whoever you want to label it um, is some feeling of loss of agency, autonomy over our body, especially when it comes to uh, sexual aggression. And I think there's, for a lot of people who didn't experience direct sexual assault, there may have been other types of violence in that way, whether it's just, you know, and I don't mean just as into downplay, but harassment, the comments being made about our bodies as as females in particular, um, men who sort of size us up as we walk past them and look at us as though they want to devour us. That's a violation. Um, I know that a lot of times when when women talk about that, Men, not all men, not only men, but there's a there's a common narrative amongst the male population that says, well, we're just paying you a compliment. What's so bad about that? They're just words. What's the problem? You know, get over it kind of thing. But the idea is that if you're a female, especially a young female, walking to school or walking, so just living your life, being out there in the world and and an, a pair of eyeballs can undress you and sort of tear you apart you feel very uncomfortable. You feel very unsafe. You feel very powerless in that situation because there is a power dynamic where you have a, a vulnerable young female and an older male who has seemed to go go into a primal state where he doesn't even remember that he's a civilized being anymore and instead he just wants to consume you. That's a vulnerable place to be. That's a scary, uncomfortable, icky, disgusting, horrible place to be. And when that happens enough times and then it's compounded by other things that that go on either at a personal level or at a cultural level for example um growing up in new york there was a period of time where the news was filled with stories of women who went jogging through central park or jogging through some park in new york city at night and they got raped or they got mugged or they got attacked in some way that alone is bad enough because that says what that women are not allowed to be outside alone at night. Otherwise, we're going to be attacked. We're going to be harmed in some way. But on top of that, there was the victim blaming narrative, which says, well, why was she in the park by herself? Why didn't she do this? Why didn't she do that? X, Y, Z. 
I mean, crazy to me to think that at that time, instead of us saying, why are men raping women? Why are men thinking that just because a woman is alone and it's dark outside that he gets to do whatever he wants with her? And why do we live in a culture that says that that's not as big of a deal? That's not as much of a problem as a woman who's just going for a jog by herself at night? Why are we making her the problem in this situation? I couldn't see that. So instead, I internalized that narrative that this is a man's world. Anything can happen to me when I go out there. The odds of anything happening increase after dark. And if it does happen, well, it's my fault. And so carrying that around with me as a young adolescent, already feeling powerless because I had had situations happen where I felt like I could be harmed very easily because, simply because, I was a female and somebody wanted something from me. I had this living in my body, my body, which I already wasn't completely comfortable in. Now I had this on top of it. And so my body just became a source of shame. It became a source of resentment. And I didn't know how to relate to it other than to just feed it, to shut it up almost, to make it, to, to, to start to hide in plain sight. In other words, you know, when we talk about eating disorders from a clinical perspective, when you look through the DSM and you look at the differences between bulimia, anorexia, and binge eating disorder, what you notice is that for bulimia and anorexia, the DSM talks about body image. It talks about the fact that somebody who's anorexic is working to make sure that they maintain a body weight that is below what is healthy for them at that size. The DSM explains that somebody with bulimia is working to maintain a body size that is at that exact line of being healthy. But it doesn't talk about body image when it comes to binge eating disorder, because I think culturally we can't understand why somebody might actually find it useful to gain weight, to be in a fatter body, because we idealize thinness. We idealize getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as women so that we don't take up space, so that we don't overstep our bounds, so that we start to become invisible. Well, there's another way of becoming invisible, especially when we live in a culture of the predatory male who, starting from the gaze and working all the way up to rape, can do whatever they want with you. To become fat is to become invisible. Because when you leave the realm of what is determined to be attractive, at least this is what I thought at the time, the, the risk, your risk level decreases. I'm not going to be the one that they're going to come after. Even though rape isn't always about being attracted to somebody, it's more about power, it's more about the violence of it. In other iterations, it is about attractiveness. When, when you're being ogled as you walk down the street, when you're being harassed at a coffee shop, that's about attractiveness. So I thought, this is just what I was thinking at that time. This is what my young adolescent brain was trying to make sense of the world with. And so I thought that if I made myself not attractive... If I could put a wall around myself, build a moat around me that would keep these people away from me. And so there is a function to gaining weight. There can be a lot of functions to gaining weight. And I hope that the DSM comes around to understanding that that is part of, not the entire thing, of what's going on with somebody who has binge eating disorder. At least it's something worth exploring. It could be there. And there are other reasons, and I could probably speak on a whole episode about what those reasons are. But for me, that was that was what I was going through at that time. And so I just started eating. Again, this was all unconscious. I wasn't consciously trying to make my body larger, but I was taking steps to do so. Another reason that I 
went to food was because I was searching for something outside of myself that I could connect to because I felt that human relationships were very confusing and very dangerous and very toxic and I didn't know how to navigate them healthily. I was a very codependent person. My parents split up when I was seven and I spent a lot of time really worrying about my mother and feeling guilty about times when she was alone and I spent a lot of time not hanging out with my friends because I wanted to be home with her because I knew that my dad had gone off with his girlfriend and my sister was socializing with people her own age. She was older than me, so she was a little bit more social than I was at that time. And I really put a lot of my focus on my mother, who also had a lot of her focus on me. And so we were in this codependent relationship and there weren't a lot of boundaries. There, there wasn't a lot of emotional separation. And we just sort of thrived on being needed by each other. And I would develop that kind of relationship with other people too as I started to socialize a little bit more and everything was about what can I do for you how can I serve you and I didn't know how to exist in relationships as myself I didn't know how to be um, my goofy self or my messy self or I was the person that had to have it all together that everybody could come to when they needed advice or they needed help and I could help them through it because I was really good at listening and I was really good at providing advice and uh, this is the story, by the way, of a lot of therapists, <laughs> you know, and kind of what led them on that path to becoming um, somebody who professionally provides that kind of service to people. Uh, we're just inherently really good at it. Um, but we, we over time need to develop boundaries and figure out a way to channel it in a healthy way. For me at this age, it was very unhealthy. It was very, I felt like a burden to anybody if I had a problem that I needed help with. And so I didn't ask for help. I just gave everybody help but didn't ask for it and I didn't recognize how how messed up that was for me to be doing for myself how much I was putting myself aside for everybody else I didn't know why I was doing that I didn't know even that I was doing it in the first place much less how to stop doing it and so relationships um, really felt horrible for me because I didn't get to exist in them I was working I wasn't being a friend I was I was doing some sort of a job and that's not how human connections are meant to be. And as human beings, we need connection. We need intimacy. That is a primal need that we have that will never go away. And I wasn't getting that fulfilled. And that's what happens is when we're not getting that fulfilled, we need to find it somewhere else. We need to have some sort of transcendental experience with something other than us that feels like we're being intimate, that feels like we're connecting with something or someone else or something bigger than us. And so that's where people get lost in addiction. And for me, because I also had to be good, I had to behave, I had to follow the rules, I wasn't going to go, you know, steal liquor from the deli or I wasn't going to break an obvious rule that wasn't developmentally appropriate for me because I had, I was driven by this, you know, need to be perfect all the time. So instead... I reached for what was available to me already, something that I couldn't really get in trouble for using, which was food. It was right there in the snack cabinet. I could I could access it really whenever I wanted, although I would sneak around because I didn't want my mother policing me or making comments about how much I was eating or doing anything like that. So it would be a, a nighttime ritual that I would wait until my mother was asleep and hope that she didn't hear me, although I think sometimes she did. Um... And I would snack and that was the way that I would feed myself. It became this cycle of throughout the day, I didn't exist. I was of service to everybody else and all of my needs and all of my desires and even my personality took a backseat. 
But at night, I needed to exist. I needed to be free. I needed to let go of all of those responsibilities that I believed that I had. And so I would feed myself, literally, so that I could fill up, so that I could feel like I was connecting to something, so that I could remember who I was, so that I could recharge, so that the next day I could wake up and I could do it all over again. I could go be of service to everybody else, to not exist, and then exist all at once with food late at night. And that became the ritual. That became how I survived relationships. And I had no idea. That's what's so interesting about what was happening to me in graduate school, you know, pulling on this thread of, well, why am I so curious about eating disorders? Well, it turns out because I've, I've had an eating disorder since I was 13 years old, and I had no idea how big this monster had become. And when I call it a monster, I don't mean that it had ill intention at all. It was there to, to help me survive. It was there to keep me from wanting to hurt myself in some other way because I was, I was in pain. I was lonely. I was scared. I was confused. I felt so isolated. I could be in a room full of people and feel like I was on another planet by myself. And, you know, some part of me enjoys that as an introvert, but there's only so much of that that you can take before you start to wonder if you're really existing or if you stopped existing, if anybody would notice. And so I used food to feel alive. And as with any addiction, what happens is over time, more and more things that used to be unthinkable start to become permissible. So it used to start off with small snacks here and there, and then it became larger and larger portions. And then it became, you know, eating when I wasn't hungry, eating to the point that I would make myself sick, but I would still continue to eat, eating through pain, eating even though, you know, I knew that I didn't even want to eat the thing that I was eating. I had to eat it anyway. Some urge in me said, eat it anyway. And so it got bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And this monster, which started out with good intentions, which was to protect me, to help me survive a difficult period of my life, it became something that completely controlled me. And so I would go through, like like is typical for, for folks who binge eat, whether you have binge eating disorder, whether you have bulimia, um, or really even whether you have anorexia, because binge eating behavior, as well as restricting behavior, which is star essentially starving yourself, not eating despite the fact that you're hungry, and purging behaviors, which is, you know, eating and forcing yourself to throw up or taking compensatory behaviors that help you lose weight. So taking diuretics or over-exercising in order to make up for whatever you consumed that day. All of these food behaviors can be present whether you have binge eating disorder, bulimia, or anorexia. They're present in any combination, in any of them. But what makes them different from each other is the relationship with body. So if you're striving to be, again, under the normal weight for your size and age and all that stuff, then, then the, the behaviors that you are engaging in are going to be more toward weight loss and restriction and starving yourself. And that's the anorexia, right? Binge eating disorders on the other um, edge of that scale where we are definitely restricting. There are periods of time where we are not feeding ourselves whatsoever, and then there are times where we're binging, binge eating and we're not typically engaging in compensatory weight loss behaviors. In other words, we're not trying to make ourselves throw up after a binge and we're not taking diuretics or over exercising because we unconsciously want the weight. 
a lot of the time. Not for everybody, but I think that that's something we need to be talking about if we're going to be talking about body image, is that there is a value to gaining weight. And that's where the binge eater stops. They don't try to lose the weight. They don't try to make up for the calories that they ate. Um, We just keep eating. But whenever you binge, there is typically a, a restricting binging cycle that happens. So I would go all day not eating. And that was the that was the time of the day where I was performative, right? I was showing up for everybody else. I was meeting everybody else's needs. And in that, I would not eat myself. So I would be hungry and hungry and hungry and hungry and hungry and consume sometimes no calories at all, sometimes very few calories at all throughout the day, and then binge eat at night. And then a lot of times I'd wake up not feeling so well because I binged the night before. Um, Whether I was physically not feeling well or emotionally feeling guilty about having binged or whatever the process, that would lead me right into a restrictive period. So then I wouldn't eat all day, sometimes for days at a time if I wasn't able to binge at night. It was like the only time that I would eat food is if I could binge. And then when I got to college, my freshman year, Uh, you know, they say that there's the freshman 15, which is that you either lose or you gain 15 pounds due to the change in lifestyle and the stress and the, the, just the different environment that you're in when you go to college. And for me, um, I lost it very, very, very quickly. I lost way more than 15 pounds as soon as I got to college. And a large part of that was because, um, Getting food, having access to food was a little bit more difficult. So the way that my college campus was set up, uh, we had this one dining hall that was only open three times a day for meals. And if my schedule, my school schedule didn't comply with their schedule, then sometimes I didn't get to the dining hall to grab a meal. We had another dining hall on campus that was open all day and you can just go in and buy sandwiches and things like that. But they closed around seven or eight o'clock at night. And again, for me, in college, I was keeping very late hours. And so sometimes I'd be hungry for dinner at like 10 or 11 o'clock at night and there was nowhere for me to get food. I also happened to go to school in a neighborhood that was uh, very high in crime. And so walking off campus to get something was a really dangerous undertaking. So sometimes I just, there were just days where I wouldn't eat and I wasn't advocating for myself in order to fix the situation. Um, You know, kind of going back to the way that I was showing up in relationships at that time in my life, feeling like I had to be a servant to other people as though I was a burden to other people. There was a very internalized uh, low sense of self-worth there. And with that low sense of self-worth, demanding or asking for what I needed, which was food, which was a very fundamental need, um, I felt that I wasn't entitled to it. I felt that I couldn't advocate for myself. I couldn't speak up. I couldn't fix the situation. And so there would be days at a time when I wouldn't eat, days at a time when I wouldn't eat. Um, I was also really broke because I was a college student, so I couldn't afford to like order Chinese food or order delivery. Uh, Sometimes the best I could do was scrap together some change and get something out of the vending machine late at night. And so when I was eating, I was eating like Pop-Tarts or chips or something, you know. But what was happening during that time was I was losing a lot of weight and I was coming into a different relationship with my body. And because I was in college and because I was 18, 19 years old, I was also newly stepping into what many people step into in their adolescence, but I was a little bit behind on, um, 
And by the way, that's that's pretty common for people who begin an addictive behavior, whether it's a substance addiction or a behavioral addiction, when they're in their adolescence, because you tend to developmentally stop growing when you start engaging in addictive behaviors, because instead of growing communally, socially with other people, you are almost stunting your growth by just re-engaging with the same substance or the same behavior over and over again. So it makes sense that if I began my eating disorder when I was 13, that developmentally in a lot of ways, I kind of stalled out at 13. And so when I was 18, 19, now in a body that was thinner and that was deemed more attractive and that was getting positive attention, I was now growing into my sexuality in a way that I hadn't in previous times. And I felt empowered. I felt strong. I didn't feel like I was a victim or that I could be a victim. I felt strong and it was exciting. And so there were times when I was able to have food and I chose not to because I wanted to maintain the weight that I was at. And so during that time, I went into a bulimic phase. And that was the first time in my life where I did attempt purging after a meal. Um, that had never happened before until I was 19 years old. And that was really unpleasant for me. And that wasn't something that I could sustain. It was something that I tried a couple of times, but I physically couldn't handle doing it. And I'm very grateful for that. But instead of purging, I was just restricting all the time. So I wasn't eating. I was choosing not to eat even when I did have the option to. And I was celebrating my body and I was enjoying being in that body for a very short period of time. And it was during that time that I did have to deal with two instances of men becoming physical with me despite my resistance, despite my saying no, despite my pushing them away. And then because my immune system was completely out of whack because I was starving my body for months at a time. And I was in a new environment, a new living situation, sharing a bathroom with 13 other women and, you know, living in a dorm. I contracted a bacterial form of pneumonia. I kind of kept falling in and out of consciousness. Uh, my fever was very, very high. My body was just inundated with this virus and breathing was very difficult, although I had asthma since I was a child. And so I thought I was just having an asthma attack and I was treating it as though it was an asthma attack, except for the fact that I would periodically pass out. Um, and even when I was conscious, I wasn't really conscious. I was existing in this state where I couldn't make really positive executive decisions. And I was hardly aware of what was going around or going on around me. It was like that state where you're just about to fall asleep. Uh, so you kind of hear things going on in the room, but you're not responding to them or making sense of them. I was kind of living in that state for a couple of days. Um, and I ended up in the hospital with a fever that was so high, the doctor didn't understand how I was even alive. And I was pumped full of steroids because that's how they treat pneumonia. And I gained a whole bunch of weight back and my body felt really weak. And uh, I was scared of it again. All of a sudden I was scared of it again because it could it could be that vulnerable it could it could get itself in that much trouble and so i regained my binge eating behaviors because now i was afraid of what it would do to my body if i starved myself how weak i would make myself if i starved myself and so i was so afraid of skipping meals and i was so afraid of not having enough food that i would binge eat more throughout the day it was it was more about it was driven by this fear and this this fear of scarcity too of not having enough of being hungry and not having access to food so i would 
overfeed myself or bring food with me everywhere that I went. And I just became so obsessed with having food out of a fear of not having enough. And over time, that went back to the way that it originally started, which was I would just binge at night and restrict throughout the day. But for a period of time, I would say probably at least a year, if not a little bit longer than that, um, I was just really obsessed with food and just eating at all hours of the day nonstop. And again, I didn't have awareness of this. I didn't recognize that I was doing something that was, you know, driven by some other need. I didn't realize the fear that I was experiencing. I didn't know that I was afraid of scarcity or that I was afraid of my body and what it could do or that I was just trying to keep myself calm. I had no idea. This was just what I was doing. And if it was weird, I ignored that it was weird and I kept on living my life. And so now I'm staring down the barrel of this thesis that I have to write for graduate school and all of these memories now are coming up and and I'm having this experience for the first time in my life where I'm naming the fact that I've had an eating disorder or two since I was 13 years old and riding the emotional wave of all of the ways that I had given my power over to this thing, this eating disorder, and that, God damn it, I wanted that power back. And so what better way to do that than to start by understanding what was underneath all of it. And that's where the hungry feminine came from. And through that, I started to understand a lot more about what was going on underneath the surface and how important it felt to me to share that with other people. And when I started to tailor my research toward women and women who have experience with eating disorders... It started to go a little bit deeper, again, into the unconscious, into the sort of archetypal representation of it. And when we look at masculine and feminine, and and when I talk about masculine and feminine on The Hungry Feminine, I don't mean gender. I'm not talking about man versus woman. It started out that way. It started out by trying to understand why the prevalence of eating disorders among women is so much higher. And it's not to say that men don't experience eating disorders. They do. They are also less likely to report symptoms of eating disorders. But even when they do, it's less so than women. So what's going on? Again, if we look at that cultural divide, when we look at how we body shame people, we are we body shame everybody. But we particularly body shame women when it comes to thinness. We ask women to be smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? And better yet, why are we complying? Why are we feeling like that is what we're supposed to be doing as women? So we restrict and we deprive ourselves so that we can get smaller. Why are we listening to the narrative? This is what I became curious about. But it doesn't just stop there. It isn't just about gender. And when we look at it archetypally and we look at masculine and feminine, we look at yang and yin, those energies that exist in all of us, not just the feminine in women and the masculine in men, but, but the feminine and masculine in all human beings, when we look at the qualities of the feminine, we start to realize that those are missing in our culture at large. In America, in most Western cultures, the qualities of the feminine, which include nourishment, which include vulnerability and intimacy, going back to what I was saying before about how we need to be in connection and community with each other, right? Qualities of the feminine imagination, creativity, nature, being, spirit, all of those things are deemed ridiculous in our culture because they don't give you power. They don't give you money. They don't give you fast cars and big buildings and fast technology. The, the feminine qualities are deemed laughable in our culture. 
They're deemed weak. They're deemed sinful sometimes in our culture. And we put the masculine qualities up on a pedestal. And part of the masculine quality is consumption. It's provision, providing for ourselves, providing for others, taking things in, acquiring things. So there it was right there. We, we fetishize consumption, but we demonize nourishment and connection and all of the meaningful ways to consume. We're just mindlessly consuming more, 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 more without any meaning. And I started to think that part of the reason that we treat women like crap and other populations, including the LGBTQ community, including other marginalized communities, the reason we treat them like crap is because they're embodying, we're embodying qualities of the feminine that our culture just can't hold. Our culture rejects them so much that when they see representations of them, they want to destroy the representations of them. But I started to wonder if we are repressing the energy and the qualities that represent nourishment, then are we culturally starving? Because we're consuming like crazy, but we're not actually feeding ourselves. And if that's the case, then our feminine in all of us individually, to to varying degrees, but definitely at a cultural level, at a collective level, our feminine is starving. And if our feminine is starving, how might we be using food to try to make up for that? Why was I eating so much in order to just get through another day? Well, because everything about myself that I deemed to be valuable, all of my feminine qualities, I wasn't allowed to take them with me throughout the day. I was going to school, which is a very masculine structured environment. I was working in corporate environments, which is a very masculine driven structure. I didn't get to exist as the feminine being that I am. My feminine traits were told to go away, to shut up because they're weak. They're laughable. My emotionality, it's just ridiculous. Get rid of it. My spirituality, there's no time for that. Get out of here. My wanting to connect with people, my wanting to rejuvenate through nature. No, there's no time for that. You got to get to work right? Productivity, productivity, productivity. That's what we preach in this culture. But productivity and consumption, they're not nourishment. And so that was where the name The Hungry Feminine came from, was looking at this idea that maybe our eating disorders are really our feminine inside of us saying, feed me, love me, pay attention to me, be me, listen to your intuition, stop listening to the narrative of the culture that says be productive, listen to me instead. But we don't know how. And again, that's unconscious, so we feed it and feed it and feed it with food. And we wonder why it's not working. And the more that I realized what was going on with the masculine and feminine in our culture, and there's a ton more that you can read about on my blog about this, and even on just the the sort of about page on thehungryfeminine.com, you can really start to understand where I'm going with this and, and, and where it came from in the first place. But the more I was talking about food in the context of masculine and feminine, and particularly the, particularly the repressed feminine in our culture, the more I realized that this is about everything. It's not just about food. It's about the way we treat people. It's about the way we treat ourselves. It's about the way we prioritize money and work over family and ourselves and tending to our, our needs as human beings. It's about calming down, slowing down, paying attention to people, having empathy, having compassion for each other instead of us always wanting to be at war with each other, right? It shows up in our politics. It shows up in our business. It shows up in our, it shows up when we're driving on the road. It shows up in the way we treat 
war and and we treat our military veterans when they come home from war it shows up in everything that we do that because our feminine culturally has been repressed for so long and the qualities of it are not allowed to to live free she's hungry she wants some balance she wants to join the conversation and show us a different way to be and it's not to say the hungry feminine is not about making the feminine the powerful one but it's about saying the masculine has had enough time to reign and all it's done is led to violence and aggression and theft and hatred and division and pain and suffering and more addiction nothing positive the masculine is capable of so much beautiful stuff it's capable of so much that's positive, but when only one is in power, when when you look at the, 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 the yin and the yang, the masculine and the feminine, when only one is in power for too long, it's light qualities, the good qualities about it start to fade away and it's shadow qualities start to come up. It's dark qualities start to come up. So where consumption and provision and diligence and self-control might be positive traits of the masculine, greed and theft and aggression and war and rape and violence become the shadow qualities. And that's what our culture is riding on right now. It's it's obvious. And I don't think that I need to paint more of a picture as to how that's showing up. I mean, I could. And that could be its own episode of where we're seeing the evidence of this. It's very clear if you're paying attention. But the idea behind the hungry feminine is not to then say, well, the masculine has failed. So let's have the, the, the feminine prevail. No, they need to be in balance with each other. They are two sides of the same coin. The masculine culture fears that when the black community and the LGBTQ community and women and immigrants and, and people of religious minorities stand up and say, we get to be here too and we're important and we want to be safe and we want to be free to speak up for ourselves and we want to exist in a fair and, and equal world. The masculine gets so nervous about that because the masculine thinks that in order for anybody to be powerful, it has to dominate. It has to control entirely and destroy anything else in its path. That's the masculine shadow way of thinking about power. But the feminine's trying to say, it's not about that. It's not about domination. It's about us sharing the responsibility. It's about us playing off of each other because the feminine and, and masculine have qualities that play off of each other so brilliantly. And that's where the balance comes into play. So we don't need to be afraid of the feminine. We don't have to be afraid that she's trying to come through and take over and destroy all of our lives. That's not the point. And that's not the principle behind the hungry feminine. It's about balance. And so that's a little bit about what I'm doing here and where I'm coming from with all of this. And like I said before, there's a lot more information um, that hopefully makes a little bit more sense uh, than maybe what I've been kind of rambling on about. Um, at thehungryfeminine.com. You can you can learn more about it there. You can follow me on Instagram at thehungryfeminine where I share a lot of quotes and a lot of insights into this general idea and why it's important that we that we feed the feminine and and empower her again to come back into the picture, to give her a voice again, to listen to our intuition, to get creative, to get back into our imagination, to take care of ourselves and our community and let our community take care of ourselves in the process to nurture ourselves, to be at one with nature. All of these things that have become so unimportant, but really they're just so critical for our success and our health and our happiness and our balance. 
as a collective people. Well, thank you for joining me here on the Feed the Feminine podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to explore more, you can subscribe for updates on upcoming episodes, as well as head over to thehungryfeminine.com, where you can join the mailing list to stay in the loop. You can also follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Hungry Feminine. Thanks again for being here. See you next time.